When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, I see. There's a there's an issue with Facebook. All right. So hang on one second. Uh, I'll just go ahead and remove that. Yeah, go ahead. All right. <laughs> Facebook. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed that. Oh, I had to get rid of Facebook. Good morning and good afternoon to each and every one of our Merry Marvelites. As always, I am Christian Blatt. Very excited for a very special episode of Marvel Movie Talk right here on Geekscape. And uh, if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you watch on the Geekscape YouTube channel. That's where all the fun is. And uh, subscribe over there to get our show, uh, our regular episode. We will be on Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, for our recap on episode four of Loki. But today, we're talking about something that, if you know me, I am very, it is very near and dear to my heart. We're talking about the X-Men, and I'm joined by Andrew DeMann, who I am actually talking to for the first time. I've never seen you before. I've heard you on other podcasts, but I've been following your Twitter account since... Uh, definitely early in the pandemic. I, I, that's when I started following a lot. There's a lot of, there's a great community of, uh, of sort of, you know, X-Men scholars in, in the casual sense, but in your case, Andrew, you're literally a scholar of the Chris Claremont run, which for people that aren't quite sure, that's the, the legendary 1975 to 1991 stretch that Chris Claremont did which I believe is uh, unrivaled, right? I mean, uh, you know, I think I think Dan Slott wrote Amazing Spider-Man for like a decade That in more recent times, but I don't think we have anything that even comes close to that, do we, Andrew? Uh, not at Marvel, no. We've got Eric Larson's Savage Dragon, which doesn't oh, sure. maintain a regular schedule, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, which technically is more years. I don't know where it stands on issues, though, but at Marvel, not even Stan Lee ever made it more than 10 years on a book. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's fascinating, and uh, I've had the uh, privilege to uh, talk to uh, Chris Claremont a number of times. I I think he likes me for the simple reason <laughs> that I really like his work, and uh, uh, but uh, you know I've had great conversations with him, and uh, my understanding from uh, reading the book is that at some point in the process, you actually got to speak with him a little bit and get some background, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, I've done it twice now. Um, I, I spoke to him at the start of this book and I, I spoke to him again at the outset of a second book. Um, um, that, that's, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Submitted first draft at this point. Uh, and, and he is amazing. Uh, yeah. he will, he will talk and talk and talk and he just, <laughs> he loves his characters and his world so much. Let me uh, just interject really for endearing. a moment. My, the, the, the most endearing thing, the first time I talked to him, which was, uh, about a decade ago now is the way that he talks about his characters. It was very, it, right away, 
he doesn't say Professor X. He doesn't say Wolverine. He talks about Charlie and Logan, and most of us call her Kitty. But you know, he's he's you know Aurora and Peter, you know Kurt. He doesn't use their superhero names, and I don't think it's you know for show. I think he just doesn't think of them that way. And uh, yeah, and, and to the extent that he's a great conversationalist, obviously he can talk about his work, his characters, the work that came before. If you get him on the right day, he'll tell you what he thinks about what they've done in the, the years <laughs> since. And, uh, yeah. oh, he has opinions. But I talked to him. Uh, so what year would that have been? 2018. And he just wanted to go off on uh, some things about Star Wars, The Last Jedi. And I've talked to him about other sci-fi. He loves NCIS, the TV show. So yes, he does. there's so much stuff comes <laughs> out and you're like. Man, you know, we talked about Magnum PI for like at least five minutes once. And I'm just like, I, 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 I never know where the conversation's going to go. And uh, his wife who had sets up his interviews for him. I always try to promise her. I, I will try to get him done by a certain time. I'll try to keep it to an hour. And that usually turns into two hours and 40 minutes. So yeah. Yeah. Poor Beth. Beth is lovely. <laughs> She's wonderful and very tolerant. Yes. Yes. <laughs> So anyway, so you got to speak with him a little bit on background. Uh, talk a little bit more about that. Sorry, I just wanted to interject. Oh, no, no, not at all. Um, just to your point, I will point out that his first novel, First Flight, is actually dedicated to the first names of his X-Men characters. Yes. Which uh, is adorable. And, which I, I have that book. I have that book signed by Chris in 1993 <laughs> at a comic convention back when signatures were free. But there was a limit. He was he the sign said that he would sign 10 books, but at the top of my stack of many more than 10 was his book and he signed his book and he's like, well, you bought my book. I'll sign all these. And I was like, <laughs> I wasn't even planning on that, <laughs> you know, so, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, yeah, so I know I, I talked to him specifically. One of the things I was really interested in was um, how he approaches storytelling. For, for me, one of the main questions was, does he approach it via plot or via character? Most people would assume character, and yeah, it's absolutely character. He, he he won't do a plot if it doesn't advance the character arc somehow. And this is really cool if you go to his archive at Columbia University, where you'll see yeah. what seems like good plot ideas, because he has all these notebooks, right? Uh, yeah. And he'll be like, this person attacks from this location. And then he'll write underneath it, ah, but what's the point for the characters? And like cross <laughs> it out, and we never see that thing actually make it. To print. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, get it. You, you cite those notes a number of times. I can imagine it was interesting to see. Uh, bringing in America's sweetheart uh, and in the interest of, uh, you know, a Andrew, he will one day be uh, Canada's sweetheart. But uh, Michael Shirley is uh, joining us now. Uh, Michael, uh, say hello to our guest, Andrew DeMann. And he hey, is responsible for the Claremont run subverting gender in the X-Men. And uh, we were just sort of getting started in, in the explanation of that. Uh, Andrew, talk about how this, it, there was actually a grant for you to study this work and, you know, this book and you referenced the future book are the result of that, but talk about how that process actually happens. Very, very organically, I um, uh, I got a promotion and I learned that I had access to research funds uh, and I had literally a weekend to figure out um, what I wanted to pitch to my chair as a research project. And I loved yeah. Claremont's X-Men. So I went into um, her office ready to like violently defend it. Uh, and I just said, I want to do Claremont's X-Men. She's like, oh, that sounds awesome. 
Uh, so that ended up happening. That became a grant proposal, which should not have succeeded, but did. Uh, so the federal government is like, here's some money to study Claremont's X-Men. And I was like, sweet. Uh, but as part of that grant proposal, um, one of the things that you usually put in a grant proposal is um, what, what's what's called a manuscript submission, which just means like, I literally don't even have to write a book. I just have to propose a book to a publisher, right? right. So it's like, a, I might be able to do this. And then that happened to work out really well as, as well because Frederick Aldama liked the pitch and he's like, oh, you should bring that to University of Texas Press. Um, and and he, he, he did. He brought that to them and they were like, OK, let's do this. Um, so like it was a treadmill, essentially. I, I, I wasn't looking to write a book. It just kind of happened. And it was delightful the entire way. Yeah. And by the way, speaking of the fact that uh, the book is available through, from the University of Texas Press, uh, I understand from a social media post that it, the book is already sold out in Canada. Uh, yeah, and, we sold out yeah. in Canada by lunch, which was kind of Which awesome. is, I mean, just uh, speaks to the demand. Uh, and uh, because he heard the word lunch, I have to bring our other host, uh, Eric Connor, in here, <laughs> uh, who... Uh, I'm sure is still having more of these uh, Loki dipping sauces from Chicken McNuggets, but uh, I I did a little screen grab of something you posted, Andrew. So the book, uh, and I think that this is uh, these are figures from Amazon here in the U.S. I assume, uh, but wherever the figures are from, it's number five in comic and graphic novel literary criticism, number twelve in comics and graphic novel history and uh, and prices, but then. Number 91 in general gender studies, which I'm like, yeah, okay. Number 91 is, you know, usually like, you know, a, a band doesn't take out a full page ad when they're 91 on the billboard chart. But the idea of how many books on gender studies there must be, uh, you know, the fact that it's in the top hundred, I'm like, wow, it's, did you expect the reaction to be what it has been thus far, Andrew? No. And those numbers are from yesterday. This morning, we were number three, number two, and number 22. Wow. Um, All right. Which is, yeah, stunning. Glad, um, glad I already got my copy. I, uh, <laughs> I don't have to wait for it. <laughs> yes, collector's item. <laughs> yeah, I know. You can't see it because of the background. That's why I have, that's why I have this, Michael. Um, and uh, yeah, so we're definitely going to talk about all that. I just wanted you to kind of set the stage for uh, how, you know, how this comes about. And the uh, the Twitter account that I started following, which is just at Claremont Run, I guess technically that's called X now, but uh, people know it as Twitter. And the it would be these long threads. And it obviously caught my attention because you would use panels from the comics to sort of elaborate on. And you did a number of videos about uh, some of my favorite characters, which we'll we'll start to talk about as we go around. Um, but uh, so the idea of a book was sort of always there, I guess. Is that the case, Andrew? Yeah, no, the book was was very easy to write having been like, like what I did was I actually I was writing the book while maintaining the Twitter account. So it was kind of cool to be able to like, you know, first draft ideas on Twitter and get feedback and yeah. hate in some cases, in some cases, yeah, some, some very positive reactions. Uh, and, and a lot of those sort of um, inflected the, the final shape of the book, um, w which is lovely. I, I will always think of this as a Twitter project more than a book project, though, in my eyes. Right. And I, I need to ask about some of the the work that goes into it, because, you know, you'll give quotes like 
Storm was visually more represented than Wolverine during Claremont's run. Storm shows up 4,155 times to Wolverine's (laughs) 3,520. She's on 97 covers. He's on 89. And then for our visual audience, uh, I actually have this right from the book. You'll have uh, charts like this, which (laughs) is depictions of physical contact, non-combat by character. So the simple question is, how? How is that all that counted? How is it quantified? Uh, are there just documents for like, this is the Gambit document, which is obviously going to be shorter than the Wolverine document. Yeah, I, I should first point out, I'm a dumbass English major and I'm really bad at math. So this was <laughs> this was a, a really massive labor. Um, with the federal grant that we got, we were able to hire four research assistants, some of whom are very good at math. <laughs> like one of them currently works for Google in New York City. And stuff oh, like nice. This. Um, yeah, so, so we were able to, I sort of designed a process and then they would go off and I would make these young people read these very old comics and then I would gather the data and try to figure out what it meant. Yeah, well, it's fascinating. And, uh, you know, I I posted some links in a few places, the fact that we're going to have this conversation and, uh, you know, there's different levels of nerd. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, I like the X-Men cartoon. I like the movies. Oh, I really like the comics. And then it's like, oh, I want to read a book like this uh, that talks about, you know, representation in terms of, you know, character representation, but also just the sheer numbers. So Cammy Egan, one of our, our favorites in the chat, wants to know if the book is available at comic book stores. I believe it's probably not, but I do know you can get it on Amazon. She's in Chicago, so it's not sold out in Chicago. It might be sold out in Canada, but uh, she should be able to get it on Amazon, right? Yeah. To, see, this is again my ignorance. I have like like no idea how exactly UTP works. Right. Um, I, I would assume that there's some hard copies of the books available in um, bookstores. I could be wrong sure. about that. They could be working exclusively through online distribution. Um, yeah. I know that makes me sound even stupid. No, no, no. I was just That's like, right. the book. I'm, I'm letting her know where to find it. So I, I want to bring our uh, co-hosts in and uh, we'll sort of go through characters. And uh, I I think I know who Michael's going to talk about. Uh, his, his hair today represents who I think is the character that you want to talk about. But Michael, uh, obviously there's a big focus in the book, Andrew, on you know subverting gender and X-Men. And it's it, we'll talk sort of about Claremont's work in terms of, you know, w- how he stands out for his depiction of women. But let's talk about the characters themselves for a little bit. So, Michael, if you're going to isolate a, an X-Men character, uh, one of the, the female characters, uh, who do you think you start with first, Michael? Jean! <laughs> Jean Grey, yes. Uh, and uh, we get... We get lots of uh, Jean Grey throughout the the Claremont run. And it, it's interesting because she was a very different character, whether it was Stan and Jack or it was you know, the, the, the Neil Adams run. But uh, pretty quickly, I mean, she is just completely different. So, Michael, when you think of Jean Grey, it's probably not Marvel Girl where everyone on the team, including the professor, is secretly in love with her. Not creepy at all, by the way. Uh, so what is it about Gene for you, Michael? And then uh, Andrew will will kind of speak to a little bit about that representation. Mm, the hair. I always love redheads. Oh, no. Uh, her power set for me sets her apart from everyone else. 
But specifically the the Phoenix power set, or are no, you even thinking no, more just like nineties? General, yeah. like, I mean, if I had my choice of any X Men's powers, I would pick genes, like to be able to move stuff and like read people's mind. You could just like sit at home all day and just work real hard. <laughs> yeah, uh, and there's. You know, it, it, it is interesting to think about, obviously, because she was this, you know, uh, incredibly strong character. And Andrew, one of the things that I didn't realize until I was reading your book, as she becomes more powerful, uh, there not everyone within Marvel is happy about that. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. Very correct. Um, I don't want to be mean to Jim Shooter because because Jim Shooter actually did some really important things with the Marvel editorial office in terms of bringing in female editors, most notably Louise Simonson, actually. Um, but he had this thing where he felt that if a prominent male villain or male hero even were to lose to a female character, that that would be emasculating. So he wouldn't allow yeah. it. Uh, and right. He had this so. Oh, sorry. sorry so in the book, you mentioned that Chris wanted uh, Jean or the Phoenix to fight what Thor and Silver Surfer, both of whom she obviously could have beaten. Yeah, very easily. Yeah. Uh, either yeah. of them. And both yeah. times he was rebuked. So what he did was he had her fight Fire Lord, who has beaten both Silver Surfer and Thor at this point. Uh, and she she stomps him. It's not it's barely a competition. <laughs> Yeah, good old. I, I believe Spider Man even uh, beat Fire Lord when I was reading in the the early eighties. Is you know, not not all heralds of Galactus were created equal. Uh, Eric uh, and I, I earlier today, Eric, you actually sent me uh, a, a an image that oh, no. Andrew mentions in the no, 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 not, no. The, not the usual kind of images. It's not anything <laughs> from our text thread. I'm glad you uh, differentiated that. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't after 10 p.m. Uh, uh, Central <laughs> Time. No, no, no. No, but uh, Michael, uh, sorry, but Eric, you actually sent me something that Andrew highlights very specifically a, a scene. This is when Jean, I think she's dark Phoenix at this point, at the very least she's Phoenix. So uh, you talk a little bit about why you sent the scene. And then uh, I'll ask Andrew to sort of uh, elaborate on why it was highlighted in the book and why it's so important. And our yeah. visual audience will see that panel right now, except uh, I have to move us around that way. For you, oh. for you non-wire listeners, listeners out there. First, by the way, Andrew, thank you so much. And it was a really, really interesting read as far as I, I kept thinking about all your assistants as I'm looking through <laughs> this. Um, I recently was on, uh, I, I stopped by my friend's studio where they're filming Lego Masters. And there's someone whose job it is at the end of the day, or more than one person, to organize all the Legos that have been used. And we're talking in the millions. And I kept coming back to that visual when I was like reading some of the remarkable amount of data. But I think you also did such a nice job of contextualizing data. Sometimes these studies can be a little bit, I call it bloodless, where it's like the mm -hmm. data can be interesting if you're into data. But I think what's really a nice hook about this book is it always went back to the emotional stakes. It always went back to really how gender was represented, how Chris Claremont took, you know, decades of very conventional comic book writing and sort of blew the roof off of it with his approach. And this one scene here you pointed out is um, they, they did a little bit of a facsimile of this um, in, uh, I think it was X-Men Last Stand, 
where he you know we don't talk about that movie on this show eric come on the the x-men who shall not be named okay thank you when scott's visor comes off and she uh at that point dark phoenix um i'm I'm not sure i'm allowed to even call her that uh it, it uses her power so he doesn't blast her into nothing and that's what this moment here is from the comic. And I apologize. I think it was X-Men 170. I, I, I had the number. No, no. One se- she's she's dead in 137. So okay. So she was alive yeah, in this. Okay. It's so definitely, it's definitely prior a little to earlier that. than that. Yeah, so, yeah. but this moment here, what I really liked in your writing about this um, was you're talking about Phoenix actually being the, I guess I use the term loosely, but the aggressive one in this moment. Mm-hmm. Sort of take off, open your eyes, Scott, nothing will happen. And imagine Dark Phoenix with my voice, never a sexier image you could have. I'm telekinetically keeping your optic glass in check. I wanted to see your face. That's all. You have a good face. I love that panel so much. And this moment yeah. here is everything. And, and also the idea that Phoenix is taking charge. She's telling him, stop thinking about the job and let's, uh, let's get down to business. Uh, but I thought this panel really spoke to so much of Chris Claremont's work. Uh, so I was wondering, yeah, in terms of focusing on this, if you could expand on that a bit, Andrew. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think this is such a, like if there's one page that defines the Scott Jean relationship in, in Claremont's X-Men, this is probably it. Uh, so it, it's this idea of um, you've been slowly exploring Jean's power creep and the, um, let's call it gendered tension that it creates with Cyclops, who yeah. is the leader of the team, and is the man in the relationship by the standards of the era that they're they're existing in, uh, and all of a sudden his girlfriend is a goddess, <laughs> and like kind of has to patronize him a lot to maintain his his sort of fragile ego. Uh, so you have this scene where she's completely in control, and, and like she literally tells him to hush. He, he's a man who can blow a mountain off of its like actual foundation, and it's just. In order to get what she wants, don't speak, don't speak. And it's such a sexual agency scene, too, because usually Jean, specifically going back to like like Silver Age X Men, she's a trophy, uh, she's what you get if you win the battle. And Professor Xavier thinks you're a good boy who obeys orders well. Uh, and she's not that here, she's again in complete control, she knows what she wants, and she takes it. And she's clearly trying to appease him a little bit. She's talking to him kindly. Um, but I think it's really obvious who's the top and who's the bottom, so to speak, <laughs> even though she's on the bottom. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. By the way, it's from, uh, sorry, Christian, it's from X-Men 132. Yeah. That, Unc- yeah uncanny that, X-Men, of course. Well, I appreciate it. Well, yes, of course. Uh, you know, that's the sort of the interesting thing is, uh, as we're sort of talking about the differentiation, the... Uh, She's not reborn, but uh, the the return of Jean that happens in the 80s, which we uh, have talked to uh, Chris about a a couple of times and how unhappy he was with it. He doesn't really write that Jean nearly that much because she was in the pages of X Factor. Not that he didn't write her at all, but she wasn't a mainstay in the book uh, for most of that time. You know, I mean, towards the end, she was there and she's in the first three issues of the, the volume two. And I think it's a, it, it's interesting because that version of Gene is really not the one he wanted to do. I mean, he thought that X Factor should have been Gene's sister, you know, which I think from a story standpoint works, but from a marketing standpoint, uh, I guess not. Uh, 
you you have strong feelings about uh, Jean's sister, Michael, or uh, are you? Elaine Gray is that her name? I forget. Sarah. 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 Her name was Sarah. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I I think that uh, you know, but the the Phoenix outfit is one of the best costumes, and I always think it's yeah. interesting because they have tried so many different jean costumes over the years you know more recently she went back to the marvel girl look which is was never a favorite of mine but it really always comes back to like even when she doesn't have the phoenix force powers they're like yeah but there's one that looks really cool you know and i mean the the green version was created by dave cockrum of course but you know and then i mean the dark phoenix one is basically that costume but red but you know, still that's from the, the John Byrne part of the run. And it it's hard to really beat that. She never has anything that even comes close to looking as cool as, as specifically the dark Phoenix one, but even the, the, the regular Phoenix green costume is a, a good one as well. Uh, so yeah, it's very interesting to sort of examine the character because you have to do a few different stages. There's the, before the Claremont run there's, you know, then she dies and then there's, of course, after he leaves. Um, when you're going through the th- this, Andrew, it, so I think it said it's about 380 comics. So what exactly does that entail? I assume it's not New Mutants. It's not Excalibur. What exactly are you quantifying when you're right. looking at these characters? So, so we had sort of two samples. The one was the sample that we could analyze um, qualitatively, the, so the reading. And that would include um, New Mutants, um, any okay. annuals, anything like that that he read. But in terms of building the data sets, what you need for that is a stable sample, uh, which means you don't want to do things that are a little bit different or under a different editor or... Um, right. Yeah, just ways that it might be discontinuous kind of messes with your sample. So for the data collecting, we specifically isolated Uncanny X-Men 97, which is... Um, when Claremont first really starts uh, to 278, uh, which is when he goes away. We didn't include the annuals. We didn't include New Mutants or anything sort of um, surrounding that. But in terms of like the things that we could talk about, the things that we could analyze, the stories that we could fold into this sort of context building in the narrative, um, basically anything that Claremont wrote between 75 and 91. Right. And uh, obviously there's, uh, you know, periods where he comes and uh, revisits these characters. But uh, I think the important thing was to focus on what I think a lot of people refer to as, you know, the classic run, you know, because uh, the the initial run is really the one where all the stories for the movies and TV shows came from, basically. You know, it's like everything (laughs) that we've seen on screen uh, basically shows up in there. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about Claremont's representation of women, which obviously is is a huge, it's the primary focus of the book. Uh, and, you know, I don't, I don't need you to go into the figures, which are in the book, but <laughs> compared to just other Marvel comics, uh, you know, Claremont having these strong female characters, uh, talk a little bit about that and how it, it really was the the outlier for the time period. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it was landmark. The, the big stat that I can throw out is that um, based on our numbers, he was Bechdel testing 42% higher on average. Right. Than the rest and of let the me just interject that. Cause I did want to turn into that. So the, the Bechdel test is two female characters having a conversation, not about a man. Is that, that's the short definition of what that is. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, 
And, and I think that, you know, look, uh, it gets applied to things sometimes very unfairly. And, and, you know, I think it's not a barometer of, of necessarily whether or not a story is good. However, uh, it was very interesting to see just how many instances there are of that in this, what, 380 comic sample size, right, Andrew? Yeah, and I, I think that's really the simple conclusion that, that kind of um, spurs the initial inquiry in the book. Um, he was just meeting a bar a very simple bar, uh, as you said, a bar that doesn't indicate quality, but, but the absence of clearing that bar consistently across thousands of comics does indicate a problem. So for him to be kind of that far ahead of his contemporaries shows things like that he's got more female characters, that he's letting them talk more, that he's letting them talk to each other more about things that are different. Um, so, so he's cultivating those female characters, I guess is sort of the easy conclusion that we can take from that. Right. Absolutely. He doesn't just uh, introduce them. You know, I mean, there were always female members of the Avengers uh, e e talking about in the same time period, and they were not always very well uh, developed. I mean, there would be issues where I believe Carol Danvers would say nothing. Uh, where oh, she, yeah. in the lead up to number 200, I think that they didn't remember she was on the team. She was just <laughs> there in the background. And, uh, you know, I've, I, I, I tried to uh, tried to get out of Claremont some of his real thoughts about uh, the way that Carol Danvers was treated in Avengers 200 and just, uh, you know, dispatched and how basically he had to make good in Avengers Annual 10 to kind of make her the character that we think of now. But uh, enough time had gone by and uh, <laughs> you know, it was just like, well, you'd have to ask David Michelini. And then he just stopped talking and I'm like, all right, I guess guess I'm not going to get that out of you, but uh, <laughs> you could tell it still bothers him. You know, they, they really, they really did that character wrong. However, you know, enough so that he came back to fix it. I talked to him when the, the Captain Marvel movie came out because I thought it was important to focus on that aspect of her in the book. You have uh, a couple, uh, well, there's a lot of great visual representation in the book, you know, uh, things from the comics, but in talking about the perception of Claremont around Marvel, you reference a couple of things that I actually, I, I remember one of them really well. Uh, this one I think is from Marvel fanfare. And this is, yeah. uh, I believe Al Milgram did yep. this and there's a lot of words in these bubbles, so I'm not going to read all of them, <laughs> but it's basically just this idea of, you know, like, Oh no, Claremont's here. And, uh, you know, you don't actually <laughs> see him in this one, but, uh, you know, the, for our visual audience, this panel right here on the far right, that's all Claremont talking. Uh, so the idea <laughs> is that he talks the way he writes and he wants to, you know, make the point about, you know, representation. And one that that sort of surprised me, but I do remember reading this book, uh, uh, Strike Force Martori, which I, I how they haven't uh, developed that intellectual property into something yet surprises me. But there's a poster on the wall that says Claremont says, is there any reason it can't be a woman? And so this guy's looking and says, uh, maybe it'd be a good idea if we, if we named her uh, Dominica. So obviously this is sort of, you know, this is definitely tongue in cheek amongst other Marvel creators, but he was really the outlier in a way that he maybe shouldn't have been where it's like, <laughs> Oh yeah, I'm going to write strong female characters. And then it's like, look at this guy, huh? You know, he wants to, wants to have all the girls in the books. What, what's that? It's called X men, buddy. 
So talk a little bit about that as, you know, as you sort of explored this topic, just this idea that, you know, I mean, he's not really being ridiculed there, but they're definitely poking fun at, at him. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of the sense of it. Um, Sean Howe talks about it in his book on, on Marvel as well. Yeah, no, um, his his mom was a, a pilot, uh, someone who worked for the Royal Air Force, uh, and he was inspired by her. And he thought that, you know, he's seen badass women. Uh, and he wanted to see more of them in print. Uh, so he immediately comes in, he takes Jean Grey, this sort of quiet, um, what's referred to as point and, po point and pose powers. You know what I mean? Where she like does like, like, like this, and then that's well, it. Yeah, Very I mean, the, the, the easiest comparison is uh, 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 Sue Richards, the invisible girl, eventually invisible woman. She also had point and pose powers. Like, well, I can be invisible and then I can use my invisible power. I can kind of move stuff. But yeah, she's not really attacking people, you know? Yeah, she's not getting her hands dirty, I guess is right. the easiest way to describe <laughs> it. Uh, and he, again, he immediately takes Gene. Lately, we're talking issue 99. What is essentially the Phoenix Saga starts. And, and I think most people who've read the books will tell you that there's really no differentiation between the Phoenix Saga and the Dark Phoenix Saga. It's just kind of a continuous story. And you can draw the line wherever you want in terms of where it starts. We know where it ends, but but where it starts yeah. is extremely fluid. Um, so anyway, yeah, he, he takes her and he makes her a goddess. First thing he does. Uh, and then after that, he makes Storm incredibly powerful, gives her leadership with the team, brings in a bunch of female characters that comics had completely given up on. Dazzler, Psylocke, they were they were gone. Nobody cared about them. Uh, and makes them awesome intellectual properties that are still in play today. Yeah. And I mean, he even sort of in the uh, era that I'm about to show an image from, I mean, it's obviously there's these strong female characters. Uh, Dazzler's a perfect example. I mean, the, the last issue of her solo series says, because you demanded it, the final issue of Dazzler. And I always <laughs> thought it was like, they're like, oh, they're bitter about the fact that we didn't want to buy it. But you know, his editor, Anne Nascenti, created with Art Adams, Longshot, Mojo, Spiral, which are eventually become such huge parts of, you know, this this Claremont lore, his run, you know, and they're they're such great characters. And I think that, you know, the the Longshot miniseries and those characters are consistent with the way he uses them. But it's easy to forget for a moment that uh, those aren't actually Claremont characters. He just was able to sort of embrace them. Um, but the reason why I was bringing up this uh, image is because you, I already touched on the fact, you talk about the fact that Storm is clearly far and away the character most represented throughout this run. And there's, there's short stretches where she's away from the team. And even despite that, she is, is still even featured more than Wolverine. Did that surprise you, Andrew, when you found that? Yeah, I think it did. Um, I, I think I was expecting Wolverine to be a lot more central, but I think that was one of the real emerging conclusions that I was facing as I, I undertook the project. Just everything runs through Storm. She's the viewpoint character. Every time that her character undergoes a major change, the book follows suit and undergoes a major change as well. Uh, so it, like, if there's one character who's deciding what direction we're going in at any given time, it's going to be Storm. And even when she does lead the team, like, they actually made an entire B story about her pilgrimage to Africa, yeah. uh, which is like not the most superhero comic worthy story, especially for a character who literally doesn't have superpowers at that time, uh, comes back and becomes the leader of the team again without superpowers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, she's she, she's everything to Claremont. And I think she's everything to understanding the fundamental movements 
uh, of the plot when you perceive it as this macro story, as Claremont very much does. He's been very open about it. This is one continuous story. Yeah. And she really uh, stands out in a lot of ways. And I, I want to ask uh, Michael and Eric, Michael, I want to ask you first. So obviously you're, you're, you're a gene guy through and through, but yeah. uh, talk a little bit about, about Aurora Monroe storm and uh, sort of the, the different looks she has, but also just uh, your thoughts sort of on the character in general and, and maybe why somebody like Chris Claremont would uh, spend so much time really developing that character, Michael. Yeah, uh, she's, I don't know, in my opinion, she might be the strongest person on the team mentally, maybe not physically, you know, but mentally, she's the one that I feel like always has the most level head, like when Cyclops is all caught up in all of his stuff, you know, she, she can kind of toe the line, Uh, you definitely definitely see it in her outfits they're very bold uh they're very showy but they're also you know aside from the the gosh the mohawk uh they're pretty feminine but they Mm -hmm. they kind of have this like strength to them uh and almost regal especially you know in the beginning that outfit is uh Mm -hmm. she kind of looks like a queen you know yeah uh, uh, I feel like he picked her to kind of do this because that's the person that no one would really kind of expect you to, mm-hmm. you know, a black woman, you know, from actual Africa. I feel like that was kind of right in line with what Chris was doing. Yeah. I mean, I he's, like he's, he's handed this character, you know, uh, Lenween wrote, giant size X-Men number one, where these new X-Men were introduced. So, uh, you know, in that book, you know, she's living, people think she's a goddess. She knows she isn't, but she also has sort of, you know, and Andrew, in the book, you talk a little bit about the spiritual background, I guess that uh, Claremont's first wife was, was practiced the Wicca religion. And so some of that comes through in storm. Uh, Talk a little bit about that, Andrew. Uh, yeah, no, his his first wife, Bonnie Wilford, was um, very into Wicca. Claremont's talked about this just a little bit. He's been a little evasive on it, um, which posits this kind of... Um, so the, the, it's Gardnerian Wicca, which is a British branch of Wicca, uh, and it posits this sort of divide between the horned god and the mother goddess. And Claremont's storm was often the figure of the mother goddess, the idea of this person who can bring destruction, similar to Jean in Dark Phoenix, actually, um, but who is also a, a life giver at the same time. Um, and I, I think a lot of those symbols in Flex Storm, like very directly, you, you'll get references to her being magical at one point in a New Mutants comic, uh, to being of a sorceress lineage. Um, yeah, no, it, it was definitely something that he was um, using to give her her sense of power because Wicca is a very um, feminine and empowering religion. Yeah, no, I think it's, uh, you know, just the the depth in which her backstory changes. You know, there's the 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 first comic where we first meet the Shadow King, I think, is uh, Uncanny 117. And there's the backstory of her as a young pickpocket. And that's when Charles Xavier 
first meets her, you know, and you get that. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about some of the, you know, it's not even the later part of the run. It's like, you know, the midpoint of the run, just the big changes that the character goes through. But uh, Eric, I wanted to kind of give you a moment to uh, have some thoughts specifically as they relate to Storm. Storm is someone that's funny. We, 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 I feel like we've in Marvel movie talk and Geekscape give Storm so much love and respect. <laughs> I think uh, for Christian and I, we're close in age. Um, and uh, But you're you older. Know, I am older. Right, it's all that going. Sure I got you that Loki sauce. Just remember that, all right? Uh, and you, this was like the X-Men that hooked me in, not just to X-Men, but to comic books mm-hmm. as a kid. So in essence, Claremont was already up and running as the writer on Uncanny X-Men, and that was the comic I always went back to. Um, always found myself connecting to, you know, going through my, well, probably stopped collecting around 13 or 14. And and Storm was a character that I always found so fascinating because of these things you guys just brought up, you know, and this idea of like what her powers were. But really, it was about her presence as a, as a character beyond the powers. And and I think that's the thing. And I know this isn't obviously about the MCU, but I, I you read about her and even you brought up Sue Storm before and think of, I, I would say the less than favorable treatment she re- received in her cinematic adaptations. It's like, you have these remarkable characters and they even got an Oscar winner to play one of them. Yeah. And yet somehow they have not even come close to tapping into in the case of really either, but for our purposes here, Storm, what Chris Claremont did, you know, month after month for years. And, and it, it's and I remember when Michaela Cole, I think that's how you pronounce her name, got cast in Wakanda Forever. There was a, a little bit of a, a, a kind of a chatter that maybe she's playing Storm, and she yeah. was not. And I mean, there's lots of wonderful actors. I mean, to me, to this day, I just if they could find a, a way to get Angela Bassett into this character, it that's feels what Claremont like, wanted. Uh, the, yeah. and, and, and especially think about when she did like um, what's love got to do with it. Yep. Like, and that's it, the era. Yep. Oh yeah. my God. She would have been so perfect. And so there's definitely actors who could pull it off and, but it takes writers willing to kind of meet Claremont's vision kind of halfway even, mm-hmm. and they've come nowhere close yet. And hopes, yeah. except for maybe the, the, uh, the cartoon. The cartoon, I think, did a better job. I think the cartoon, it's definitely easier to approximate what you had from the comics. And in terms of uh, Claremont's ideal casting, he mentioned it more than once when when I've talked to him, is the fact that he thought the perfect actor to play Wolverine would have been Bob Hoskins because that's how he envisioned him. And obviously he's even said he loves what Hugh Jackman did, but that was the way he was uh, thinking uh, at the time. But yeah, Angela Bassett uh, in that era, or you know, even now, would be a, she a could great still pull it off. Oh my god, they, yeah. But they've <laughs> uh, they've got they've got other stuff for her to do. Uh, in in reading about Storm, Andrew, you reminded me of a story that I probably read once. Uh, a lot of the early part of this Claremont run, I would read month to month as they were being reprinted in a book called Classic X Men because. Yeah those comics were all very expensive and they hadn't done a good job of collecting them at that point. So I would read classic X-Men, but because 
comics were only 17 pages in those days. There were some great background stories. I've talked to him about a, a couple of them. There's like the initial plan for who Mr. Sinister was going to be, what his backstory was, which ended up getting changed. But you see that in a, a classic X-Men backup. But you talk about what I, what I remembered reading as I was reading you talk about it. It was sort of this, <clears throat> this fascinating idea where this character... Uh, named Phil is basically a surrogate <laughs> for Claremont, right, Andrew? Oh yeah, no, it's it's he's introduced as a um, a, a weary pulp writer who's been loyal to the company, yeah. as a massive fan of Dan Dare, like that only describes Chris Claremont, you know? Right, right exactly. And he goes and he's going to kill himself because he's tired of the, the company grind, which is awesome to have somebody write that in a Marvel comic. <laughs> and, and what saves him is Storm. Yeah, she she shows up, and if that doesn't speak to Storm as Claremont's muse, I don't know what does. Yeah, I mean, he's literally put himself into the story. Yeah, yeah, uh, and <laughs> and the fact that you know, so she he's basically about he's thinking about jumping off the roof of this building, and that's when she sees him, uh, and it's like, oh, okay, so so she's like literally <laughs> saving his life. Which uh, I, I I don't know it's it's so interesting and and those I believe they've been collected but those backup stories in classic X Men I mean some of the things that you know they really delve into the the Gene and Logan backstory in classic X Men number one which had been touched on in the books then but certainly not not even hinted on in the seventies at least so it, th there's definitely some retconning that happened that it's like all considered you know part of the the lore in in this day and age um and i wanted to ask you andrew before you started the project and since we're primarily talking about female characters but uh, you know, was there oh my favorite x-men character that i'm the most interested in heading into even before maybe you even had the idea for the project who did you think stood out <laughs> And where did they measure up when you actually started, you know, quantifying how much I was going to say screen time, but how much, you know, panel time they got? Yeah, I think so. My favorite X-Men character as a child was Colossus. Uh, and I, I really liked a, a lot of the sort of um, idea of this like violent bruiser with the, the soul of an artist um, who maybe doesn't have intelligence, but does have emotional intelligence. That was cool to right. me. And I got into this project and I don't think Claremont liked Colossus very much. He, he just, he didn't write for him very much. Wow. He didn't, he didn't Thunderbird him. Yeah. But, uh, it could yeah. have been worse. Yeah. Which, I mean, <laughs> and that's a fascinating thing that, uh, you know, Thunderbird is, you know, the first, I, I don't know, as far as I can think of, he was the first native American uh, Marvel character and uh, Claremont kills him off after three issues. But his explanation is like, well, he's basically the same as Wolverine uh, less, interesting powers same demeanor less interesting character i didn't want two of them but uh you know and it's it's like a, more than a decade until you know they basically bring his brother warpath along and they're like oh let's try this again but uh it's sort of fascinating as i was reading that i was thinking about like oh yeah he really he gave thunderbird three issues to serve to, to live <laughs> so I, I have to defend claremont a little it was mostly sure. dave and len who yeah. decided that, that Thunderbird was redundant and Claremont claims that he opposed it oh, uh, okay, and that he was mad about it thereafter, which is actually why he brought um, in um, James later on. Yeah. Um, and maybe also to some degree why he created Danny Moonstar, uh, who's a, a really good indigenous character um, in th through whom Claremont really explored something that I think 
comics had probably never explored with indigenous characters, at least in the mainstream, which is the idea of modernity for indigenous people. You know, I mean, like if you have an indigenous comics character, they're going to have a feather uh, and they're going to use a bow and arrow. And yes, Moonstar sometimes does both those things. Yeah. But Moonstar also talks about what it's like to live on a reservation, what it's like to go to a shopping mall, what it's like to be exposed to the racism of students in her class. Uh, so it, like, there was some really cool stuff he did with indigenous characters. Right. And, and, and that's a good point, I guess, because those, you know, you said that your official characterization of the run starts in issue 97 and uh, Claremont wasn't really in the driver's seat quite yet. Those first few, I guess what Len had plotted those or whatever. And he just sort of, yeah, I, I think Marv in. Wolfman helped out too. But, yeah. But yeah. 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 Claremont's first, like, like independent, I am the writer of Uncanny X-Men um, issue 97. Well, uh, I'm sure, Michael, uh, if we're talking about individual characters, you're probably not even remotely surprised by who I'm going to bring up next, Michael. Uh, if if we're speaking about female X-Men characters, uh, I'm going to talk about the character that when I was a kid was always my favorite, probably because she was the easiest to identify with. Uh, but uh, I will always have a uh, soft spot in my heart for Kitty Pride. Also known as Shadow Cat, and for our visual audience, I'm showing a sketch that I had Dave Cockrum draw for, I believe, twenty dollars at a comic convention <laughs> in the late '80s in Middletown, New York. He was just sitting there with his wife Patty, who he worked with a lot, and uh, he threw in Lockheed. It was twenty dollars a character, and I was thinking about like, oh, I'd probably be cool to have him, uh, you know, pencil and ink uh, Wolverine. But I'm like, ah, but that's not my favorite character. So he <laughs> drew me this Shadow Cat, which isn't even from from his era. But the fact that he threw in Lockheed, I was like, I, I feel like I feel like I uh, got a real discount in there, you know. <laughs> but Kitty Pride is such an interesting character, and I, probably because of the the age of the character, uh, Claremont is probably way more protective of her than some of the others because of how other creators have treated her. You know, they've had her get older so that she could date grownups. You know, th there's a lot of things that, that, you know, he's talked about, you know, other writers come in and they change something about a character and then the old writer comes back and immediately changes it back. It's just sort of, I guess the way it goes when, when that's the world you live in, but talk a little bit about Kitty, who of course, you know, you mentioned Daniel Moonstar, uh, who is, of course, a strong female character, but she's also, you know, of Native descent, you know, Native American. But Kitty has the advent of also being one of very few Jewish characters, mm -hmm. uh, even today in, in comics. You know, I mean, there's like the Israeli superhero Sabra. And I don't <laughs> know a lot. I mean, I guess Ben Grimm is is Jewish. Right. But there's there's not many. Right, Andrew? No, um, this has always been the weird thing because the Marvel bullpen in the 1960s had a whole lot of Jewish representation amongst sure. the creative staff. Ben Grimm was known to be Jewish. Everybody knew he was Jewish, but he was not canonically Jewish. Kitty Pride like is identified it. as the first canonically Jewish superhero at Marvel Comics. They, they had, a, just to interject, they had Ben Grimm finally get married to Alicia Masters at some point, I think within the last few years. And he, he wore a yarmulke to the wedding. And that was where I'm like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. Of course, <laughs> you know, but I, but as a kid, no, you're right. It was like, if you assumed anything, maybe he was Italian, you know, because he grew up, <laughs> he grew up in on Yancey street, you know, and with yeah. all those ruffians. But anyway, sorry, back to what you were saying, Andrew. Um, no, just the, the, this, this very kind of, um, 
clearly a character coming from a different background. Again, you have the Jewish element in terms of the importance of that representation. You have the youth. Uh, this is not a new thing in comics. We've been doing child sidekicks since literally the 1930s. Um, but having this character come in immediately after Jean Grey dies, like, like literally she shows up while they're at her funeral. Yeah, she's like, uh, she's cool. like, she takes a cab to the mansion and she's waiting because there's no one to let her inside. It's like, well, and the cab driver's like, all right, well, let's just leave this 13 and a half year old outside here. And... <laughs> but you have a 13 year old kid who is extraordinarily vulnerable in a situation that has just been rendered very vulnerable because you've taken away the plot armor because Gene has died. That's really cool. And all of a sudden, all of the violence and trauma that the X-Men are exposed to directly or indirectly gets seen through the lens of um, a child who is in no way emotionally or physically equipped to deal with it. That creates a really amped up tension and a wonderful sense of vulnerability in a narrative that superhero comics don't usually have that, right? The sense of vulnerability isn't usually there. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that, uh, you know, there's uh, for our visual audience, uh, there's obviously the very memorable Professor Xavier is a jerk, which is the title of Uncanny 168, where she kind of logically gets punted over to the New Mutants. I mean, mm -hmm. there's members of the New Mutants. Most of them are older than her. So it kind of made sense. But uh, she obviously proves herself and she ends up back on the X-Men. But, uh, you know, it's. But they, I always liked the the dynamic between her and Ileana, who when we first mm -hmm. met Ileana, she's a little girl, then she's a teenager, and then she goes back to being a little girl, except that's not on uh, that's not during Claremont's run, I think, when she ends up being a little girl again. But correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew. I think that's uh I think that's Scott Lobdell that turns her back into yeah, like girl. just after right, Claremont like right after. Yeah. Yeah, but um, Eric, uh, I, I want to uh, also ask you about you know other characters as well. But Eric, specifically, um, I wanted to give you a minute to talk about Kitty Pride uh, for you know people who maybe don't know. Uh, Eric, you're you're Jewish, and there's not a lot of characters in Marvel. Was there something special about Kitty because they took the time? I mean, in her first appearance, she's wearing a Star of David necklace. You know, I mean, yep. there was never there. It was never like later on. They're like, oh, yeah, let's do this. Let's change this about Kitty. You know, I mean, she's one of the only Jewish characters. Right. Right. Wait, and, and what you're bringing up, uh, Andrew, as far as like you had a lot of Jewish writers working in comic books uh, for, for decades just like you had a lot of Jewish writers working in Hollywood for decades and decades mm -hmm. since the birth of it, really. I mean, half the names are, well, <laughs> transforma transformations of Jewish names like mine is, you know. And and I think what, what happens, though, is this thing like where the actual religion very seldom makes it to the screen in mm -hmm. big Hollywood films, made it very seldom made it to the page of the comic books. Uh, and, and, I, and I could understand, I think, sometimes you know, and this is a larger discussion of, you know, what it means to be, uh, you know, a minority in America, what it means to sort of, are you Jewish American? Are you American Jew? And this is the kind of debate that has gone on since, you know, I don't know, since Columbus, I suppose. And, <laughs> and, and I think, you know, they found a way with her to sort of bring it organically to the surface more. You know, we, we talked about this a little bit with uh, the recent run of, um, Moon Knight on um, Marvel, you know, where, on Disney Plus, because, you know, that one obviously it, it's it pulls a bit more because of its settings. Like there's a moment where he's, uh, you know, sitting Shiva for 
I think was his mother a Christian or his father who passed. I believe it's his mother because yeah. his mother, his mother. Well, for for lack of a, you know, his mother goes through some mental health issues in the series. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yes, yes. And, and so it's like him, like falling to his knees with a keep on his hand. Like there's something really powerful about that. But again, I, I think it's always that balance of getting it to the page when it makes sense, uh, mm -hmm. not leading with it. Um, and you could see even now the blowback that the character of Sabra is getting in this, uh, you know, the New World Order movie that's being developed speaks to lots of politics. I know we're not going to get into here, but just, <laughs> just not, not on this show, no, not on this show, no. <laughs> but there's always that concern, I think, and I get it. Yeah. I, I think it's like you don't want to let these sort of like religion or politics, which are always complicated things, to bring into any form of education or writing. You always got to be careful of it overshadowing everything else going on. But I, but again, I, I think that's why I liked with Kitty. It's like it didn't feel, you know, like such a big thing. It's like sometimes it takes, oh, yeah, I forgot she was Jewish, you know. But, yeah. but I think it, it, that's the thing you're always looking for is the sense not of leading with one word as in Jewish or Italian, but rather it's part of the character, but it doesn't define the character. No, she's she's much more defined by her ninja training, you know, which we get in the Kitty Pride and Wolverine. I mean, that's such a huge part of the character, especially subsequent creators. Uh, but, you know, we, we don't focus on the subsequent creators too much over <laughs> here. Um, Michael, as we're talking about, you know, X-Men characters, specifically some of the females, is there is there anybody uh, there's one that I know that I, that I, I feel like you might want to talk about, but is there anybody that you feel like we haven't talked about enough that really stand out to you as strong, powerful female characters from this Claremont era of, of X-Men, Michael? I'm surprised the name Rogue hasn't been mentioned at all. Yeah. Well, now you can. Yeah. <laughs> you take it, you run with that Rogue. I mean, it, it, you know, especially the way she's developed and, you know, I referenced in passing uh, Avengers Annual number 10, that's her first yeah. appearance. And she is, you know, definitely a villain character who steals Carol Danvers abilities and memories. And it, she's so complicated and it, it's definitely sort of this controversial character that's brought into the X-Men controversial within the pages. I don't think the fans were upset, you know, but you know, there was like Wolverine was away in Japan and it's like her. Well, if Charlie says so, I guess so, you know, but uh, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure she tried to kill me, you know, only like six issues ago, but uh, eh, whatever. But no what is it about? Perfect. Yeah. What is it, Michael, about Rogue though, that, uh, you know, obviously that, that makes her somebody who should be at the forefront of a conversation like this. Well, she's I'm trying to think, and she's the, really the only character I can think that represents a strong Southern woman mm -hmm. in the X-Men. Uh, she's got, um, I don't know, Rogue is, like, even from her hair to her outfits, I feel like Rogue is always portrayed as kind of like a badass. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I think that, uh, you know, the amount of time that uh, Claremont's able to spend with Rogue, you know, and, uh, you know, she really becomes the character that I think a lot of people do discover her from the animated series, but people really get to, you know, she's so different than when you first meet her, or even when she's first in the X-Men, you know, I mean, she is this public enemy number one and she's the character she's this mutant that the government 
wants so badly to take the powers away from that they develop technology that will take away mutant powers except of course uh not everybody's as good a shot as they should be and then they take away storm's powers and i mean andrew it's years that she doesn't have her powers right i mean in terms of not narratively obviously it's 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 arguable as to whether or not this entire claremont run is more than like three years in terms of the story but for like it isn't until like the outback era that she gets her powers back right andrew yeah, just before that in Fall of the Mutants, yeah. actually, the, the yeah, which image is the image I'm showing right now is, uh, yeah, Fall of the Mutants. Yeah. So right before that. And uh, yeah, I mean, and, you know, there's uh, nothing more humbling if you're Cyclops that uh, you get uh, you lose uh, leadership of the team to someone who doesn't have their powers anymore. Uh, but uh, really the focus should be on uh, what a terrible father Cyclops was. That's really yeah. what, you know, and I, I, I will always have to point out it's not claremont's fault that's the that's editorial that's uh was that's bob layton right that's that who insisted on x factor being the original x-men which i don't know i was reading comics at that time i was not clamoring for the return of the original x-men i liked the new x-men i didn't i didn't need them to come back i didn't need angel and beast to you know show up in a monthly book um one of the characters that I, I want to touch on from later in the run, but uh, who's popularized in the, the 90s cartoon was somebody who was the the X-Men character that really stood out to my wife and her sister, who were Chinese-American growing up in Orange County. And that's Jubilee. So even late in the run, Claremont is introducing these new characters who are checking some other boxes that he hadn't before. And I didn't realize that she's one of those characters that people kind of are very dismissive of because, and I'm not, Michael, I'm sorry, I'm not going to talk about when she <laughs> later on becomes a vampire. It, that's that's not Claremont related. We can do a special on that if you'd like. But <laughs> no. we're going to just talk about the, the Claremont canon version of Jubilee. And I mean, in a lot of ways, it's like, oh, she's kind of like Dazzler, really. But it's it's that dynamic that is something that's always important for storytelling with Wolverine, you know, whether it's Kitty mm -hmm. or the issue that I always isolate uh, uncanny 205. It's Katie Power from Power Pack when he's lost his memory and he's wandering around in the snow. There's always this this paternal nature for Wolverine and, you know, Jubilee sort of with, you know, with Kitty going off to, to England for Excalibur. Uh, I think that uh, it was the perfect time to introduce a character like that. But talk a little bit about, I don't know, anything, Andrew, really, that in your your analysis, anything that stood out about Jubilee? Um, yeah, I, I think the intersectional experience that you mentioned, the idea of, I mean, X-Men from Giant Sized was created to be a series of stereotypes of nationalities, right? Claremont didn't like that. He immediately made Storm African-American as opposed to African. Uh, he made Wolverine less of a lumberjack <laughs> under the surface uh, and a few other kind of things along those lines. Right. So, so Jubilee is a character who is of Chinese descent, but also through and through American. Right. Uh, so there's, there's this layer of complexity to that. There's this character who is all bombast and um, confidence and charisma. She's literally a con man. Um, but beneath that, a very vulnerable character, a, a character who is still a child who's had their childhood largely taken from them. Uh, who can burst into tears at any given moment or flip you off. Uh, and, and you don't necessarily know which one you're going to get. Um, and pairing her with Wolverine at a time when Wolverine was at his most vulnerable, 
yeah. uh, was, was, was really cool because she becomes his caretaker despite being a teenager herself. Uh, and he teaches her stuff that that's obvious. He's got the knowledge and the wisdom, um, but she's, she's clearly desperately alone and she clings to him with such force that it's almost toxic. It's almost codependent, but at the same time, it's kind of beautiful. And, and I think that complexity again in the relationship is wonderful. Yeah. And there's a, there's a moment. I, it might actually be in the solo book. It might be after Claremont. This might've been Larry Hama might've written it, but there's a point where he has to like leave her behind and uh, it's it's always, you know, he didn't usually let you know he was leaving. It's just you get up in the morning and like, oh, I guess Wolverine's gone, huh? But uh, that, you know, so the, their bond, I think, was uh, stronger than uh, than a lot of the other ones we had to explore. Uh, I, I want to get to some comments from the chat. But uh, before we start uh, wrapping things up, Eric, I know uh, you put in some time uh, reading the book and it seemed like you enjoyed it as much as I did. I wanted to know if there was anything that we haven't touched on. <laughs> Uh, that uh, your I'm going to use air quotes that your homework uh, turned up <laughs> that uh, you wanted to pose to Andrew. Yes, Mr. Blatt. Thank you, Mr. Blatt. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, so much of what I read in this, I, you know, you're bringing up Christian, like your your wife and your sister in law, and their sort of experiences uh, connecting to a character like Jubilee. So my wife Lauren has a very different kind of circumstance, which is she's surrounded by a lot of big dumb men. Um, me, <laughs> our two dogs, and our two sons who are not so dumb, but they're getting big and they're getting pretty hairy now. And and so thus she goes to a lot of these movies, hears a lot of very geeky, nerdy talk amongst us. And and what I really enjoyed in your book, Andrew, you brought up so much of the stuff that drives my wife nuts in, in mm. a good way you brought up, meaning talking about the Bechdel test, which is something we've actually taught our kids about at a pretty young age. But even something that, um, and, and I don't know if you had a chart about this, but it was connected to one of the charts about ripped clothing and yes. how often the women were portrayed. And I, I actually grabbed an image. Hopefully you can see it somewhat okay. This is yeah, yeah. actually Padme from uh, Attack of the Clones. Yeah. And the idea that she could get her shirt ripped so perfectly in her midriff. And not hurt the skin. <laughs> not yeah. the, no, why would you hurt the skin? <laughs> the, the, the muscles, look at the, the washboard abs. Uh, <laughs> Hey, hey, Natalie Portman worked really hard for that, all right? <laughs> yes, she did, just like I worked hard for mine in a very different way. Um, <laughs> and so I think like what you've done here with this book, which is great, it, it, and right up there on the title, Subverting Gender, you know, I think you you really sort of uh, sing the praises of Claremont, but also I think you do a nice job of putting a spotlight on things that, I mean, honestly, a lot of men might not really think about, you know, and mm -hmm. I think like, you know, it, it is a running joke in these movies whenever two women talk about something that's not a man. I go, hey, Lauren, look, look, they're, they're talking. Look, they're talking. They're not talking about men. And she gets annoyed every time because they're like, every just time. wait. And lo and behold, usually she's right that give them a minute. Um, but I but I think like so much of what you did here that that's really great is like, it, like I said, it's it's not just numbers. And I have such respect for the the depth of the research you did here. I mean, it really is astounding. Um, but just giving it a good emotional context. And I think also, too, for anyone out there who is writing, thinking of writing, it's like these little reminders of like the power we have with the choices we make and sometimes the choices mm -hmm. we don't make, you know, and, and I think you did such a nice job of just reminding at least this reader what Claremont was able to do with Marvel for years 
to bring it forward before, really before a lot of his contemporaries were in TV writing or film writing. I think he, uh, Claremont maybe was a step ahead in a lot of places. So, uh, so I really appreciated the work here and it's one that I'm actually going to convince my wife to read as well. Although it's hard, she gets her Marvel diet's pretty full. But yeah. I think there's you might make an exception for this. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot on the menu. Well, Eric, I know you have to go. Uh, we'll finish up in a few minutes. But uh, obviously, if people want to so continue much, the conversation with Eric Connor, he's Count Eric Connor. And uh, Eric, <laughs> uh, we will see you on Friday when we're talking about Loki episode four, sir. Oh, Michael, I can't wait to see how happy you'll be. He's already he's already rolling his eyes. Yeah, Andrew, thank you again. It was a great book. Thank Good you job. so much. I appreciate it. Oh, oh, wait, sorry. I was, I was kicking you out of the room. <laughs> yeah, as you're kicking me out. Cammy Egan, I was going to suggest, oh, buy a bunch of the books. Old, buy a bunch of the books. Go over the border to Canada. You'll make oh. money. Make sure Andrew gets his cuts. That's yeah. All right, bye. Contraband. Yeah. All right. She, yeah, he's, he's solved it. Yeah, that's... Yeah, that's funny because uh, yeah, when I was in college, we had a friend who lived close to the Canadian border, and he'd bring down like Molson with the higher alcohol content. So this is sort of like the the nerd equivalent of that. Uh, Daniel Drew in the chat, we were talking about Cyclops earlier. Uh, Scott didn't have the best father himself. Corsair, the Star Jammers. Uh, yeah, he's <laughs> not a particularly great dad. Uh, I have to uh, agree. Uh, on he's on, a cool on dad. <laughs> he's a very cool dad. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, Daniel had earlier asked, uh, other than Claremont loving character development, of course, is it possible that there just weren't many other teen young adult female characters that weren't mutants in Marvel at the time? I mean, I, I know what you're saying, Daniel, but there's no shortage of female characters. We're talking about the mid seventies, you know, I mean, I think when Stan, Jack and Steve Dicko are starting, there are, are far fewer but by that point, I mean, Spider-Woman had her own book. I mean, it, didn't, you know, it lasted for like four years, but she still had it. You had Ms. Marvel. You definitely had this explosion of uh, diverse characters like Luke Cage. You had a lot of female characters. You, you had uh, Shang-Chi, who really lasted until the 80s. But I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I guess, is that maybe what you found, Andrew, that there should have been better representation because of the characters who were out there, but uh, maybe just, you know, and I feel like at some point Marv Wolfman wrote spider woman and, and you know, uh, Claremont did eventually uh, as he did with Ms. Marvel, but did, were you surprised that maybe the creators responsible with some of these other female characters weren't doing more? Yeah, a little bit. I, I think I, I was expecting it somewhat just because it's the world we live in, right? And, and I think a lot of it is kind of editorial decision. You know, if you decide to hone in on a target demographic that is the teenage boy demographic, that's going to affect the way that you view stories, right? And that'll trickle down to the writers. Right. Um, so there's a little bit of that going on, I think. Um, I, I think Claremont was clearly coming in with a mission. Uh, like he flat out states it in some interviews. He says, I want to write strong female characters because he doesn't think other people are doing it. Uh, so in some ways he's a response to that, which I think is kind of interesting too. Not just that he wanted to do it sort of innately, but that he recognized that absence, that gap. The one that surprised me a lot was um, the Frank Miller Bechdel testing. Um, Miller wrote two arcs that were about Electra and Karen Page and not one yeah. of those issues passes the Bechdel test. Like not one. That's intense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and there's there's a specific test that uh, Karen Page fails, which is uh, don't give up your boyfriend's secret identity for a hit of crack. 
you know, uh, which uh, really, really spoke to me when I read that. I was, I don't know, I was like 11 or 12 when I read that. I'm like, what? Like, you're yeah. his friend. But to, yeah, I mean, Frank obviously Miller, one man. of the strongest Marvel female characters would be Elektra, or so you would think. And uh, yeah, that was one of the things that I read. That was early in the book. I was, um, I was surprised. Sorry. I've, I've got a cough and there's really not much I can do about it. <laughs> Michael, uh, I want to talk about, as we wind down, the other character we alluded to. We talked about how Claremont had a habit of kind of picking up some discarded characters. Talk a little bit about Dazzler, Michael, and uh, why she's amongst your favorites. Oh, I love Dazzler. I have every issue of that series. Um, I, I like her because she's a rock star. You know, like that's that was such a fun thing to me to see them bring in someone that you wouldn't really, you know, they've already got a career. Like, why would they want to save the world? You know, um, Dazzler's got some of the best costumes. I feel like uh, she was very much perfect for, you know, the 70s and just, you know, the way she initially appears um oh yeah the the roller skate disco down yeah i i love that look myself yeah yeah absolutely yeah but uh i really really kind of fell in love with her when i started playing that old uh x-men uncanny x-men video game she just kind of the her power set where she throws you know photon grenade yeah like like (laughs) they really it really kind of i don't know it kind of I feel like she's the strongest character in that game. And I think that's really speaks to kind of the way Marvel was at that time. And still is in many ways, or at least the X-Men, the way they were, you know, uh, it makes sense that, you know, one of the smaller female characters will be the best, you know, most loved character in the game. Yeah. Um, But, uh, yeah, for me, it's 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 that, you know, pop star, rock star thing I find so interesting that she cares enough, you know, to be part of this team when she could just be out there making money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not a Claremont story, but the uh, there's the Marvel graphic novel Dazzler, the movie where she was oh, like yeah. one of the first people that comes <laughs> out. It's there's you want to talk about problematic storytelling, but there's that moment where she's basically outed as being a mutant. And yeah. I thought that that was a, an interesting sort of dynamic because, you know, mostly the uh, the the X-Men, you didn't really know who they were, but the people who needed to, I guess, all knew who Charles Xavier was. But I think, uh, yeah, I, I always thought that uh, Dazzler was an interesting character. And uh, I believe Psylocke is a character he created writing Captain Britain, right, Andrew? But Yeah, uh, like not even recognizable. Like, like yeah. literally she's just Brian's twin sister, Betsy. Right. And, and you know, there's some, you, you know, there. I mean, obviously there's so much that can be talked about violence to female characters i mean there's that term from the green lantern story when you fridge a character where literally the character's body ends up in a refrigerator but you know uh betsy braddock becomes captain britain and she's so overmatched that's how she becomes blind and you know that's uh, i guess that's another carol danvers situation where claremont's like look what they did to this character now i have to kind of bring them (laughs) back and 
in her case, let's make her Asian, which, you know, look, definitely was a very cool look. And uh, especially for the, the Jim Lee period, you know, I mean, that look for her. But, you know, even the the sort of the, the 80s look where I, I don't know what else to call her other than, you know, the British Betsy Braddock. You know, uh, it, it was it was an interesting addition, the character, I thought. And, uh, you know, I think that she fit in well to this this era where it wasn't literally this, but I kind of remember the mid to late eighties being where the X-Men were a group of female characters and Wolverine, you know? I mean, <laughs> yeah, more like, or less. Yeah. But essentially, cause you know, you sort of had havoc and, uh, and long shot, but for the most part, the characters that the focus was really on uh, were the, the female characters. Well, uh, Andrew, uh, I enjoy the the Twitter account for years now at Claremont Run, but uh, reading the book, uh, I just didn't realize what a hot commodity this book was, or maybe it's just south of the border. Uh, it is. Undersupplied, but, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but um, I, I let's hope they print more. And, you know, I, I assume you can get it for like the Kindle and stuff like that too, though, right? I mean, I, I would hope so. So yeah, even even our uh, our our audience in the Great White North, uh, as they say, you can you can still get the book. You just can't hold the book. And they sent it to me digitally, <laughs> but then they asked if I wanted a physical book, and I'm like, oh yes, please. Uh, I I wasn't gonna ask for one, but when they offered, I'm like, I much prefer to read it that way. So uh, I hope if uh, people have been interested over the last hour plus, they check out the Claremont Run, subverting gender in the X Men. And uh, Andrew, I, I referenced at Claremont Run, but uh, I know you have another project if you want to tell people other places where they can find your work and what you're up to these days. I'm sure. I think the easiest method is to Google me at this point, just because I've done a lot of stuff. But uh, I have, a, <laughs> I have <laughs> another brag. social media thing called Sequential Scholars. Yeah. And um, I co-host a podcast called Gosh Golly Wow, which is all about the Marvel comic Excalibur. Yes. So, uh, uh, and th they're closing in on the end on that show, right? Because there's 10 episodes one. left. Yeah. There's like 130 issues of Excalibur. And I remember I mentioned that in passing to Claremont one time and he, it was like, it was almost like you're like, my grandfather would hear something and just go like, Oh geez. You know, the idea <laughs> was just like, Oh my gosh. But, uh, yeah, that, that's a fun show. I've, I've, uh, I, I've, contributed when there have been sort of milestone issues like oh come up with a caption for this panel so i've done stuff like that <laughs> where i've submitted those that that is a a fun show uh is you're at the, the point where sorry go ahead michael is, is that the podcast where you each episode is an issue of the book yeah and we bring on like a like a comic scholar so it, it, it's a bunch of like nerds being real yeah. nerdy it's, it's very nerdy to go issue by issue through excalibur uh, which was, you know, obviously not the the best selling mutant book of the era, um, but you're well past the part where I was reading it anymore. But uh, mm -hmm. it's definitely interesting to see what was going on in the the late part of the run, um, of the the run of Excalibur, as it were. Uh, so yeah, so just Google uh, J Andrew Demand D E M A N for audio audience. And you should be able to uh, find him and his work. And of course, the book, The Claremont Run, Subverting Gender in the X-Men. Uh, this show will be back at our regular time on Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific. Talking, I'm sorry, Michael, about Loki episode four, but uh, <laughs> there's only three more. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes for you. Um, some of us will have been enjoying it at that point, but... Uh, 
we'll see. We'll see how Michael feels. Uh, and please make sure wherever you're watching or listening to this, make sure to subscribe to the Geekscape YouTube channel because that is the only place you'll be able to find our show uh, going forward. I know we did a couple of simulcasts on my YouTube channel, but go to Geekscape, G-E-E-K-S-C-A-P-E TV on YouTube. I know I don't need to spell it, but I'm spelling it anyway. Anyway, thanks again to Andrew and uh, everybody in the chat with uh, some great thoughts. Uh, we will see you next time. And as the great Stan Lee would say, Excelsior! You're listening to the Geekscape Network.